Good morning, C4 Church. Just really glad you're here this morning. If you're wondering what that video was and you're confused, it's okay. Uh, the worship leader actually from that video is going to be hanging out with us at our 905 VNU in a few weeks. His name is Martin uh, Smith. You remember him from Delirious. He's going to be leading in a few weeks. So uh, we'll be telling you a little bit more about that. I just want to say for a moment, let's take a moment to thank all the people that stood and went out and said, yes, I'm willing to check out uh, children's ministry this morning. So good. And as Pastor Dave rightly said, this is not just about loving children. This is about us intentionally sacrificing things that we love to make room for many more people. And I just want to say this this morning. We are not going to win this issue that we're facing down with room and expansion if we do not help Jillian in the back minister to more kids so more people can come. So I want to say again, if, if you are a person that are not serving yet or you're serving in a small capacity, whether you love children deeply or not, serve in kids' ministry for the next six months because we need to break this barrier together so more people can hear about Jesus. Agreed, everyone? Very significant. And let's keep praying for those people. So thanks so much. Let's give them a hand again for what they're doing. Really great. Really great. Well, today is a significant day here at C4 in the sense of, at least in our sermon world, because today is the end of us reflecting on Easter and the theme of color. Today also is the last day in the book of John. Today we end two sort of series that are coming together and we're going to work this through. So it's a significant thing because we've been in the book of John for so long. If you've got a Bible this morning, I'd love you to turn to John chapter 21, the very last chapter in the book of John. And if you've got it virtually or physically, you can navigate there or turn there. You know, I love traveling the world, and uh, it's a great privilege to be with people from other cultures. You learn when you hang out, whether you go across the sea, or you go to a different country, or you walk down the street to a neighbor who's different than you, and you just hang out for a while and you get to know them. You realize how quickly we are similar, what makes us human beings. But you also realize very quickly how different we are. Isn't that true? You can see it by food. Food is the great dividing line for culture. How we do family is a very significant thing when it comes to us and culture. But one of the most significant ones that rarely is talked about, but all of us here and sitting online and watching online know is true is this. Personal space. Personal space. When you travel to other cultures, every culture has an unsaid rule of how close you're allowed to be to another human being. And it gets really interesting when one culture meets another culture and they don't have this discussion with each other. Things get very uncomfortable very quickly. I grew up in South America, though I was born in the Schwa, I grew up down there, and I was uh, pretty, I would say, in the east side of Canada, from the Great Lakes over, and in the States, we're sort of conservative as people. Wouldn't you sort of agree? We're not LA, and we're not New York, but we're something else. And so, my view is, we have a one-arm rule here. That's probably, maybe to here, that's okay. If you sort of cross that, something starts happening inside. Now, we're Canadians, so we'll apologize that you're in our space immediately. We'll say, oh, I'm so sorry. But, but this is sort of the rule. 
And, and if you cross that, it's uncomfortable. Now, I grew up in Latin culture. I love Latin culture. I know there's some Latinos and Latinas here today. And, yeah, okay. And, uh, and what you'll know about Latino culture is they are intense. They're impassionate. They can talk about how they were sleeping last night. They can talk about the soccer match, the best food they've had, and how they got married. And they do it at the same level with the same intensity. And they do it right here. I was shocked when I went to South America because I didn't expect this and people would get right in my personal space and they'd be, I thought, yelling at me, but I realized they were just telling me about how excited they were that they woke up and I'm like, okay, I'm okay. Uh, we don't use that intensity uh, where I come from. But it's interesting, it's this one arm length rule and, and it's interesting when someone gets into your personal space, immediately in your gut, your gut you feel uncomfortable, don't you? And there's two options you have, and we all humanly do this. The first one is to push back. I mean, not violently. I'm just saying, just say, could, could, you, could you give me a little space? Could you back off a little bit? It's that, it's that innate idea to fight because you're, you're too close. The other one is to step back, to, to produce some room for yourself, and, and maybe they'll, they'll get to hint. Usually they don't if they're a close talker. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Fight or flight. Why am I bringing it up this morning? Well, this happens to us all the time. It's a very normal experience. But if you've been listening very carefully for the last year, if you've really allowed the gospel of John to soak in, whether you've articulated it this way or not, this is what's happening. And actually, it's what's experientially happening across our church. Jesus is getting into our personal space. And Jesus is getting closer and closer and closer, and actually, he's nose to nose with many of us. And amazingly, even with Jesus, our natural reaction is to push him back or to step back. But I want to say here this morning these words, don't move, don't fight, and don't run. You want Jesus in your personal space. You want Jesus to get closer and closer, no matter how uncomfortable you feel, because he has answers we don't have. And we're the ones who say that we love Jesus, and we want to be intimate with Jesus, and we want to walk with Jesus, and we sing to Jesus. And yet when he gets close, our natural heart says, space or fight. And I'm telling you, don't move. Jesus gets unnaturally close to do unnatural things. Can I say that again? Jesus does, gets unnaturally close to us for a reason, to do unnatural things. And the whole gospel of John is Jesus getting closer and closer and closer. And we see the reaction of people. Some push back, some run. But those who love him, who want to keep walking with him, ground themselves. It's six encounters later. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's appeared six separate times now to the disciples and others. Color is growing stronger and stronger as Jesus continues to meet, assure, give faith, and build up this small band of people that would become his hands and his feet and his representatives. These broken people that would be redeemed and would bring the kingdom of God to the rest of the world. The very low lows and the very high highs of Good Friday and Easter and beyond have now taken their human toll. So some of the disciples decide to move home. 
They go north to a place called Galilee. They take time to think, take time to recuperate from the whirlwind of events, not just uh, of Jesus' murder and and resurrection, the whole three-year gamut. They just need time. They go back to fish, back to eat, back to work, just to get in some routine again, water and sky and wind and fishing, something that has a result at the end of the day. Jesus. Jesus shows up in the north, and he appears to them again. And they don't know it's him at first. They're fishing, and and Jesus asks them from the shore, well, hey guys, how many fish have you caught? It had been one of those days. Any anglers among us here? You're in the hip waders. You've spent $2 million on your tackle, right? You're ready. You've watched OLN for three weeks, and you catch nothing. One of those weeks, one of those days, they caught nothing, and these guys are experienced fishermen. It says in John 21, 6, that Jesus gives them an interesting answer. He says, oh, boys, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. I love when Jesus does things like that. Yeah, I know that you've been doing it, and I know that you're an expert on this, but just watch this. Fish, attention. There. Boom. And it happens. This part of the story ends on a beach. Jesus is with Thomas, and he's with John and Peter and two other disciples. And it reads like this in John 21.10. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore, and it was full of large fish. I love it, 153. But the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come, come and have breakfast with me. None of, them, none of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? They knew it was Jesus. And Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. Now, this was the third time he appeared to the disciples. He appeared to others after he was raised from the dead. Breakfast was good that morning, really good. I mean, it's fresh fish, it's fresh bread, and you're sitting with the living God. It doesn't get better. That's brunch extraordinaire right there. This proves that Jesus has risen from the dead. Here at breakfast, over this simple meal, there is hope, there is community, there is good, fresh food, and there is resurrection right over the coals. But Jesus is not showing up to do the same thing again. No, he's shown up for specific will, specific intention. Jesus has showed up to get into someone's personal space. Last time, remember last week, it was Thomas. Thomas was full of doubt, genuine pain, struggle, and Jesus showed up providentially, stepping into his life before it turned into unbelief. As Jesus had brought Thomas out of that hopelessness and that consuming hole of doubt, now Jesus turns his eyes to Peter to save him from something else, to save him from deep sadness, his deep despondency, actually to save him from an open wound that if it was not addressed would not only lead him to crashing later in his ministry, but actually could crash the whole movement called the church. I'm sure Peter knew the conversation was coming. I'm sure, but I'm sure he did not know when or how it would go. Oh, how Peter had been the loudest, right? The most committed, the most powerful, and how he had crashed and burned in the most public of ways. Never forget the story of Peter. It was Peter that got it first. Not John, not all the others. It was Peter. They're in Caesarea of Caesarea Philippi, it says in Matthew 16. And Jesus asked his disciples a question. 
Who, who are people saying that I am, who the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said, but what about you? Who do you think I am, or who do you say that I am? And it was Simon Peter that answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by a human, by flesh or blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that your name now is Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Peter, this great leader, Peter, the one that God chose to help the whole world, he is the first one to fully understand Jesus. He was there at the miracles. Water to wine, feeding of 5,000, dealing with demons. He was there at the giving of the Sermon on the Mount. He was even one of the ones that got to experience the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John saw Jesus in his heavenly state. He's in the inner, inner circle. He's got platinum tickets in Jesus' crew. And yet, he is the one who most publicly falls. And not only falls, most publicly rejects Jesus. Remember a few weeks ago, just before Good Friday, it's the Lord's Supper, Passover. Jesus gets his friends together, he rips bread apart, takes wine, and he talks about what's about to take place in the next 24, 48, uh, 36. He says, look, and in Mark's account, in Mark 14, 30, he says this to Peter, I tell you the truth, today, actually tonight, Before the rooster crows twice, you, Peter, you will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Look at me, Jesus. Look how committed I am, Jesus. Look at what I've given up already for you, Jesus. Look at what I've done, Jesus. Remember what I've said about you, Jesus. I got it first. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. But if you know the story, it does not end with Peter's vain and boastful expressions coming to fruition. No, no. Jesus' sobering words come painfully true during Jesus' trials. In Mark 14, 66, it reads like this. While Peter was below in the courtyard during the trial, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him, and she got in his personal space, and she said, You... You're with that Nazarene Jesus. Panic would have set in for me. I'm sure it did for him. I'm sure he would have looked around knowing he's surrounded by those that are charging Jesus. He's in the enemy's lair and the question embarrasses him and he makes him unsettled and looks around one more time realizing only one person has recognized him. So he says, I need to convince her it's not me. And so he chooses approval from the slave girl over Jesus. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And he went out to the entryway. Denial one happens. He fakes it and moves, and he acts confused. This only gives a few seconds of security. The sin of omission is about to become the sin of commission. The same girl follows him and begins to now share her thoughts with the crowd. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. And again, it says he, he denied it. Just leave me alone. You, you've got the wrong guy. The second denial works only for 10 more seconds. 
The crowd grows. Peter's discomfort breeds fear and horror. As this crowd refuses to leave him alone, they get closer and closer to him. They come by for another pass, getting closer to his space. After a little while, verse 70, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you are talking about. I am not this guy, and I am telling you now, you people, I curse, may God damn me from heaven if you say this again, and I will curse you too. But see, what we do not catch here in Mark is this, and I shared this when we went through Mark as a community. Peter, in the, the inference here is Peter actually says, may God damn Jesus Christ. I will never reject you. I don't know this man you're talking about. He can't even bring himself to mention Jesus' name. And as the rash words left his mouth, as like an awakening of a never-ending nightmare, Peter falls apart. In Luke's account, it says, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and Jesus turned and looked right at him. And Peter remembered the words of the Lord, and he went outside and he wept bitterly. Peter throws himself on the ground, puts his cloak over his head, and he begins to weep and beat himself. See, this is the deepest form of betrayal. This has the same power as like having an extramarital affair. All trust is broken. There is no going back. See, you can't read John 21 without hearing that first. To understand the heart of Peter and Jesus and the end of John, you need to hear that today. Because all this has not gone away for Peter. Yes, Jesus is risen. Yes, there is peace declared and hope and joy. But have you ever thought about it? Every time the resurrected Jesus shows up in community, in the back of Peter's mind, he said, but I blasphemed him. It's like so many of you who became Christians and thought that because you're redeemed and saved and positionally you are good before God, your history would no longer affect you. Not true. You may be good with God, but you now need to work out your stuff with God down here. It's still sitting as an open wound. Every time joy shows up, there is regret. This is deeply anchored in the soul of Peter. His mind could not remove the memories. He had been so weak. I'm sure the emotions would be self-hate, anger, despair, shame, guilt, mixed with joy and hope and salvation, if that's possible. Jesus is risen. He's setting up his movement before he goes. And this is the moment. This is the time at this very second that heaven chooses to get in Peter's space. John 21, 15. When they had finished eating that breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you, do you love me more than all of these? The question would hang in the air like smoke. I'm sure the question had a physical effect on Peter. His mind would start recalling his, his, his words and his actions, his stomach full of butterflies. Again, his eyes, I'm sure, hitting the ground, maybe holding back tears. And as they, it seems, walk a little bit further, the conversation now really gets underway. 
Why such a reaction to the question? We'll see it's all in a name. Notice Jesus doesn't call him Peter. He actually calls him something else. He doesn't call him Peter, the name he gave at the heaven-given confession and profession, the name, by the way, which means in Greek, rock. He had not been his namesake. He had been foolish. He'd be heroic for the moment. He had been cowardly and blasphemous, and he had been crushed. That impulsive zeal is now broken in him. Simon, son of John or Jonah, the name you had before, you're full of weakness. Jesus does this on purpose to hurt, by the way, everyone. It's calculated. He wants to hurt, to humble, not to humiliate, but this, this is intentional. Simon. I learned this week that Simon comes from the name Simeon, a great Old Testament name. And Simeon's definition means to hearken, uh, to hear, and to heed. It means simply this, to hear, to listen, to act. And this is actually exactly the pattern Jesus is going to follow right now. Jesus is going to bring his name to fruition. Peter is going to hear, Peter is going to listen, and Peter is going to act. See, what I love about Jesus is he's going to both redeem the Simon name and the Peter name and bring them together and use him profoundly. Isn't that good? Jesus now chooses to address Peter's deepest wound. But never forget as we read this painful moment this morning, If Jesus was not Jesus, if Jesus was not love, if Jesus' very DNA was not patience and kindness, this could end terribly. But see, Jesus is love. Jesus does not envy, he does not boast, he is not proud. Jesus never, listen, dishonors anyone. Uh, Jesus is not self-seeking, and Jesus is not easily angered. And oh, here's a great one. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. That's a good amen moment. Jesus does not delight in evil. He rejoices with truth. And since Jesus protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres, it's okay that he confronts Peter. And oh, by the way, it's okay that he gets in our space and confronts us. See, it's amazing that Jesus chooses in his holiness to come into our sin, into our brokenness, into our deepest regrets. It's okay to trust Jesus with the most tender parts of our story. Why? Because he confronts us to restore us. He is not compromised at all by sin like the rest of us. And since Jesus is never cruel, this coming act of love is given to humble and restore, not to humiliate and ruin Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than your fishing? Do you love me more than your job? Do you love me more than your family? Do you love me more than your names? Do you love me more than the position you have with those around you? Do you love me more than your pride? Do you love me more than your self-sufficiency? Oh, Peter, do you love me even more than your deep failure? Do you love me? Love is such an important word, such an important experience. We all know this sitting here this morning. But as we found out this year, love means so much or so little, it has been reduced down to a personal choice or view in our our culture. But the Bible is very clear about love, what it is and what is not. There are three names for love in Scripture or in the New Testament. The first one is eros. It's romantic love. It's it's that thing. It's sexual love. It's that. Mm, Eros. Phileo love is the second type of love. It's the deep love family and friends have for each other. It's that warm affection. It's even what couples have long after the honeymoon, where there's a deep affection. Though they have eros love, erotic experience together, they also have a deep connection with one another. It's affection. 
But then there's agape love. This is God's love. It is never impetuous. It's steady. It's faithful. It's deliberate. It is loyal love. And God's love for us and our love back to him is supposed to be agape love, to go beyond the first two. One wrote, agape love is deeply emotional, but it's not fueled by emotion. This love places high value on tangible expressions of kindness rather than on emotions that may or may not produce anything. See, that's why John 3.16 is so powerful. For God so agape the world. It's why Paul wrote his definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13 like this. Do you notice it? It's beyond affection and beyond a sexual experience or romantic experience. Love is patient, kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It does not, it's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is, self, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. It protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. See, that That is agape love. That is what God has done for us. So Jesus shows up with all that background, now you know it, and says to Peter, Peter, do you agape me? Do you agape me? And he answers, yes, Jesus, you know that I love you. But he doesn't say agape. He says, yes, Jesus, you know I phileo you. I have deep affection for you. Yes, I have friendship with you. See, Peter could not say the other love and be honest. He could not profess full love. And yet, I love this. He says, I have a deep personal attachment to you. Not the love you ask. And notice what Jesus does. Jesus accepts Peter and says, feed my lambs. Serve me by serving others. The conversation continues. Again, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, still not calling him Peter, do you agape me? Okay, Peter, just stop. Stop right now. Drop the agendas, the dreams, the comparisons, everything you own and you want to be. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Jesus says, take care of my sheep. I have deep affection for you. And again, Peter will not go all the way. And yet Jesus warmly says, I still call you and I still use you. Do you see the power of what's going on here? Listen closely. Each time Jesus commissions him, he is affirming Peter and saying he is going to use Peter despite his deepest sin and failure. Each question brings up everything because nothing can remain hidden when you have the risen and exalted Jesus get in your personal space. But he says, I'm going to use you anyway. As Peter sways, I'm sure, between emotions of failure and forgiveness. I'm sure he thought this was going to come to an end now. But it's not. See, just when we think that Jesus is done, and our sin is exhausted, and there's nothing more to deal with, Jesus full of power, Jesus full of meekness and gentleness, speaks again, examines again, gets closer and closer A third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus changes the question. You don't get it in English. He doesn't say agape here. He says, do you have warm affection for me? Do you have friendship love for me? See, do you really even have the love you claim for me? I'll come to your level. Do you have that even? 
Jesus, like a surgeon, is digging deeper and deeper to get at the root of the issues. See, first Jesus tests the quality of Peter's love, and now he's actually challenging him and saying, are you lying to me, or is this real? Do you actually really love me in any form? Peter was hurt, verse 17, because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? I'm sure Peter wanted to say, you saying I'm a liar? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Why do you keep asking? Here's why. Jesus' heartbeat here is so significant, and we actually as a church are the result of it. Peter, you need to know that you know that you know that I love you and you actually love me. Why? Because this is the only foundation that is going to help you be faithful to my will in what's coming. Let me say this again, C4. Listen so closely, because the truth for Peter is the truth for us. If you do not know the full, overwhelming love of God, and if you do not know what He has spoken over you, and you've taken it into your heart, and if you do not know that you love Him back fully, you will never get on to obeying Jesus, and you will never call on Him fully, and you will never follow Him where He wants to take you, because you will be more concerned about you or your history rather than His will. Love is the only foundational act that moves us to service. You'll never give up your comfort if you have not experienced the deep love of Jesus. Three times this love is found wanting. Three denials before a fire. Three restorations before another fire. Three denials, three confessions, three commissions. Oh, the deep love of Jesus for Peter. Peter cursed him and asked that God would have And Peter is sitting here now and Jesus looks at him and says, Oh, how I love you and how I'm going to use you despite your wickedness. Oh, it's the hymn, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless and free. Rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me underneath me, all around me, is the current of Jesus' love leading me onward and homeward to the glorious rest above. See, that's what's happening here. Only when we as people see what Jesus has not only done for us on the cross, but continues to do in our walk every day, will we be willing to do anything he asks at a moment's notice. Only when Jesus gets close to us and makes us look upon all we want to avoid and run from and pretend is not there, when, when we do that, when Jesus gets close, then he speaks and he clears and he cleans and he applies the power of the cross and then love shows up and we will be his slaves. Love experiences the most powerful motive to love and give. In history, you've seen this time and time again. The cross, of course, is the ultimate example in Middle Eastern history, it was during the reign of Cyrus, the great king of the Persians. They had overcome the Babylonians. You can read about it in the Old Testament. He was called the king of kings, and he ruled the known world. One of his top generals was in court one day, and they found out that his wife was involved in an experience and a conspiracy to kill Cyrus. This is recorded in history. They brought her before the whole royal court, not like our courts today. She was brought forth, the charges were read, the witnesses came, and she actually was guilty. Cyrus, the king of kings on his throne, declared that this woman had to die immediately because she was involved in trying to kill him. 
as sentence was pronounced by the most powerful man on earth. The general stood. He walked towards Cyrus' throne and he said, let me die in her place. Cyrus, in awe of what was taking place in front of him, declared this as written in history. Can we determinate a love so great as this? And he paroled the woman back to her husband even though she was involved in an attempt to murder him. As they were leaving the court, the general said to his wife, Did you, O wife, see the benevolent look in Cyrus's eyes as he pardoned you? And she responded, Of course not. I only have eyes for the one that loved me enough that was willing to die for me. See, that is the essence of our movement. That is what Jesus is working out for Peter and Jesus is for us. We only have eyes for the one who's died for us. And it is only after we know not only what Jesus has done on the cross for us, but what he continues to do for us, that we will be so moved to give everything to him and his kingdom. And notice, after Jesus restores Peter, after he takes that open gushing wound and he heals it and gives him agape love and exchanges agape love even for his friendship love, then and only then does Jesus say to Peter, now let me tell you what's going to happen next. I cannot underestimate that point. Only after Peter knew that history was dealt with, only after he knew the blasphemy had been broken, only after the denials had been washed away by the forgiveness of Jesus, only then does Peter understand his new calling. Verily, truly, I tell you, verse 18, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you. And lead you to a place you do not want to go. Peter, you are going to take my truth to the world. And you're going to get old and you're going to get sick. And someone else is going to lead you. But see, what we miss is this. When it says, stretch out your hands, that's always used in this language for crucifixion. Peter, as I have died for you, you will die for me. So many will know the truth. And it will set them free. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome years later. That's why John actually says right here in the next verse, Jesus said this to indicate the type of death which Peter would do to glorify God. And then he said to Peter, follow me. Peter is restored. He's been forgiven. He's been given a new lease of life. And remember, this is not a conversion from someone who did not know Jesus. This is given to those that already are followers. He has told him he will have a profound ministry. He'll even die for Jesus and this will bring glory to God and bring purpose and the kingdom of God will come on earth and his denials and his hot air are washed over by Jesus' restoration. The story switches. Peter turned and saw John following them. And, And Peter said to him, Lord, what about John? After such love, after such a powerful experience of Jesus doing the deepest, unnatural form of restoration, Peter turns around and he compares himself to John. See, when you fail as a human being, comparison always leads you to push people down so you feel better or you let yourself be pushed down and both are not from God. Jesus turns to him And says to Peter sharply, 
if I want John to remain alive until I return, uh, what is that to you? Side note, Peter, follow me. Don't concern yourself with what I choose to do with my other servants. Keep following me. Keep your eyes on me. Don't always be looking at what God is doing in other people's lives. Don't spend your time running around trying to imitate and be that person. Listen, what I choose to do with John, I choose to do with John. Oh, side note, Peter, I'm telling your story, not John's story. Shh, right here. Comparison is death. In verse 23, John writes this. It's quite funny. He said, and he's writing it because it's about him. He said, there was a rumor spread among the believers that I I would not die. But Jesus didn't say I wasn't going to die. It's just very interesting. Can you imagine hanging out with John? Hey, that's the guy Jesus said he's never going to die. Ooh, right? John would have such a different ministry than Peter. He'd move to Ephesus. He'd write 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He'd, He'd write the book called Revelation. He'd preach the love of God. He'd confront the first wave of people who called themselves Christians but were not because they denied Jesus was fully human and fully God. He would be resisting the spirit of Antichrist spreading already in the church within years. And then he ends the book this way in verse 24. You can read it with me. This is John, the disciple who testifies to these things and wrote them down. We know his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them was written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would need to be written. The book comes to an end, and he says, I wrote this so you'd believe. I wrote this, and I'm a witness, and other people are witness to these historical facts, and I ask you to believe on Jesus. If you have not believed on him, believe on him for the first time, and if you do believe, keep on believing. And notice, he says, I just want to say to you, I'm not a liar. I was here. I'm witness. But here's where I want to draw your attention. Isn't it amazing that in this very brilliant, heady book that brings us into the depths of the Trinity and helps us understand everything we believe, isn't it interesting that the last two stories in a movement about belief is that Jesus walks into Thomas and Peter's life. He deals with uncontrollable doubt and self-hate. See, self-hate and regret and doubt are the two ugly twin sisters that kill faith. Have you thought about that? Jesus gets unnaturally close to these two leaders, and of course, they perpetuate the gospel. But the point is this, unbridled doubt and unbridled regret always leave you leaving Jesus. And that is why Jesus strategically chooses to deal with these things at the end of the book so we not only intellectually know what we believe, but that we are experientially called to be closer to the risen Christ so he can continue to root out and help us through us. This is good news. Jesus is declaring in this passage that every single one of us in this room and online who are Christians, who have fallen have been disloyal, that have secretly sinned or publicly done so, he says, I love you and I want to restore you and I'm going to keep using you. Your sin and failure is not big enough to overcome my love for you. 
This is so close. Jesus refuses to let us be the same, and Jesus is going to commission us out. But you've got to start here. Jesus' call on Peter's life is on your life and this church's life right now. And some of you keep resisting the closeness of Jesus because you don't trust him. But I am telling you, he is about restoration, and he is about empowerment, so his kingdom and your life can change. Jesus is calling and welcoming all of us home. How many thousands live in Durham who think that Jesus doesn't want them anymore? Jesus does want them, and he's never left them. He calls failed people, and he loves to restore failed people. See, we've been praying in this church for two and a half years for personal renewal, listen closely, and corporate revival where God would supernaturally change our whole church, which we've started to see the beginnings of. And we're praying in faith for an awakening where thousands of people encounter the living Jesus. Jesus. But notice this, personal renewal and revival will only continue to grow among us only continue if we let Jesus get closer. Only until we know the love of God and the forgiveness of God and what he really says over us will we continue to be empowered in different ways. See, let me say this bluntly this morning. You will not have a powerful, fruitful walk with Jesus unless you welcome the living Jesus into everything that you are, every secret, every sin, every pain, everything. We need Jesus desperately to walk into this church and into our lives and ask us the question, do you love me? See, you say, well, John, how do I do that? Simple. Go home and write out a list over the dinner table tonight. I'm not joking. Write out every single thing you in specific detail have avoided talking to Jesus about and talk to him and watch him show up. Don't be vague with our master. He knows everything. Don't say, oh, I struggle and give some category out there. Tell him. Tell him I've had an affair. Tell him you're lying or cheating. Tell him. Tell him everything you, tell him you can't forgive people still. Tell him you're not sure about if he's there. Tell him in detail, why are you so afraid to talk to the one that is love embodied? Go before him and say, come close to me like you came close to Peter. Get in my space and in my face, but do it in such love. And I want to talk to you about all this stuff. I want to talk to you about stuff that I haven't resolved for 40 years of my Christian life. And I want to be free now in my 70s and 80s. I don't want to live like this anymore. Let Jesus come close, O church, because when he comes close, he loves us. The more we step back from him or push him away, the less power we will have. Here's the other thing too, let me say it. You will not suffer for Jesus. You will not sacrifice for Jesus unless you know how much you have been served. If you're not willing to invite Jesus in to serve you, to rebuke you, heal you, and comfort you, you'll never know how much you've been served. You'll never serve above and beyond. You'll never give your money. You'll never love people who don't look like you. You will never act like Jesus. You will never give up your earthly comforts for something that's coming. Are you joking me? Unless, unless you know the love of Jesus. We'll never, as a church, be effective for God's kingdom if we keep comparing ourselves to others. Let me say this this morning. If you spend your life trying to be someone you're not called to be, you'll end up before God and God will say, why did you waste the life I gave you? 
You've been given gifts and talents and a situation and a story that is not mine and mine is not yours. Do not waste your life and do not let the devil or others point you and say, you must be like, no, no. Jesus is writing your story. Keep your eyes on Jesus and only Jesus. His voice has to be more intoxicating to you than any other voice because if it's not, you will compare yourself to others and then you will lose. This is the intensity of Jesus' coming close. But why? So we get beat up? So No, 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 because he wants us to be free. You'll not believe unless you know the love of God. You'll not believe unless the love of God faces down your past. You will not believe unless the love of God and the redemption of God allows you to deal with your present. And you will not believe that Jesus wants to keep sending you out unless you really know that he loves you, that he loves you, that he loves you, and you love him back. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14. For Christ's love, notice this, cell phone's down, look at this. For Christ's love compels us. That word compels means to be bound, to be gripped, to be all-consumed. Because we are convinced that Jesus died once for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live, notice, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised from the dead. God's love is the fuel. It's the energy. It's everything that helps us live for other people. But if you do not allow Jesus to come close and allow him to let his love spread over your stuff, you will never be compelled to serve and bring the kingdom of God into Durham. Jesus is inviting us At this moment, at the end of John, one last time to believe. Not just believe, believe. He's coming close to our church and saying to our church, Oh, C4, how I love you. Don't you know I died? Don't you know I thought about every one of you when I died on the cross by name? Do you not know the hope and plan I have for you? Do you not know that the life you live is good and wonderful at points, but there is more? Stop running from me. Allow me to draw close. Be honest about your stuff, both sin and not sin. Just be honest about it. Invite me in because I will so transform you by my love. You will actually give up things you think at this point you would never give up because your love and my love will be one as me and the Father are one. Christianity at its heart is love, powerful, redemptive, beautiful. But Christianity on the ground is difficult because we say to Jesus, we want to know you. And he says, good, I'm coming. I assure you this morning, as a person who loves Jesus and struggles with him just like you, it's worth him coming close. Because we can't afford to be the same. Because our world, like I keep preaching at this church, is looking for changed people. And real change is not about politics or money. It's about people who look like 1 Corinthians 13. And 1 Corinthians 13 happens when Jesus walks close in our space and deals with our stuff and makes us like him. So, Jesus, hear our prayer. At the end of this unbelievable book that has made us think on the deep things of our faith, 
has both intellectually and experientially challenged us. We pray that we would continue to believe in this church. The people who have never met Jesus would keep over these next days, months, and years meeting Jesus. For us who have known you and walked with you, that we would never step back from you and never push you away. We invite you to come and ask us about the quality of our love. Jesus, we also ask you to redeem us and speak beautiful redemption over our church. Where you said to Peter, the one who cursed you, feed my sheep, serve. Oh God, in this middle class church in the middle of Durham, make us a church that looks like Jesus. It can't happen without you because we will not do this naturally. So come for us, we pray. You are good. As we sang, your love endures forever. Oh Jesus, keep coming for us. Amen.